Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Greetings and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and I invite you to join me each week as I engage with top performers who are here to share insights into achieving your goals. As a podcast ranked in the top 2% globally, we deliver actionable strategies for both your personal and your business life. So whether you seek entrepreneurial tips, <clears throat> excuse me, career guidance, or personal development, prepare to translate inspiration into tangible results. So in other words, sit back, relax, and take notes, and let's navigate the path to success together. And our topic today is an important one, and it's very, very timely, and it is strategy in the digital age. My guest, award-winning professor, author, speaker, and consultant, Michael Lennox, brings over 25 years of expertise to guide MBA students and executives through the complexities of competitive markets and disruptive innovation. And as the Taylor, I want to say Taylor, but it's not, it's Taylor Murphy Professor of Business at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. Michael has also served on the faculties of Duke and NYU and as a visiting professor at Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford. It's impressive. He has an impressive resume here. And his academic journey, academic journey includes a PhD from MIT in technology management and policy, along with a BS and MS in systems engineering from UVA. And the book that is on my desk, Strategy in the Digital Age, offers a concise roadmap for successful digital strategy planning and execution. We need that now. We really do. So going beyond digital infrastructure, structure, the book explores how digital technologies enable innovative services and products, helping organizations identify new competitive positions and business models, and he is covering major topics like big tech, AI, blockchain, and so much more. So welcome. It's good to have you here, Michael. Denise, thank you so much. It's absolutely a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you. I read your book. You sent me the book some weeks ago. We've been trying to get you on in a at a time frame that makes sense because strategy and the digital age, this book couldn't come at a better time. So thank you for being with me. I know we had to push you around a little bit to get you here, but I really appreciate you sending the book and showing up with me today. Well, I say always say it, you know, it's better to be uh, lucky than good. And uh, the timing of this book obviously coincided with the just a massive increase of interest around AI, especially with these generative AI models like uh, Open uh, Open AI Chat GPT. Oh, yeah. And you were telling me in the green room, and I think you've mentioned this before, that when you wrote this book, and, and you'll need to tell the audience when you wrote the book and how long it took for it to get published, that you didn't really talk about chat GPT, even though you knew something about it, it really didn't make it into your book. So 
share share that with us. Yeah, you know, with with the academic presses I published with Stanford, uh, you usually submit the book uh, about eight nine months before it actually appears in print. So my final version of the book was submitted in October of 2022, about one month before ChatGPT uh, 3.5 was uh, was released. So fortunately, we do talk about generative AI in the book. We talk about large language models, but ChatGPT in of itself wasn't wasn't a focal point uh, in the book. And I have to tell you, ChatGPT in many ways is just magic. In other ways, in the hands of the wrong people who don't take the time to understand what it is and how it works, it can be dangerous. And I think that's true of a, of a lot of AI in general. Right. One of the things I've been uh, giving talks about and, and talking to different audiences about is just the broader impacts of AI on both capitalism and in democracy. And there's some real concerns about how these tools can be can be misused uh, in the political arena, uh, what it might do to markets and the like. And so um, it is a powerful tool, one that I think has a lot of upside and a lot of really important applications, um, but there are also some serious downsides we have to recognize as well. Oh, no kidding. I remember seeing on Twitter, maybe it was a few weeks ago where, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the whole story now, but where a judge had an attorney submit his brief and the judge caught it and said, is this actually true? And the attorney said, yes, it is. Well, it turned out it wasn't. It was ChatGPT. Well, and I think that actually example highlights one of the limits of these large language models. You know, at the end of the day, what they're really doing is trying to predict what's the most likely next word in a sentence. And so for many things, that works really great. If, you know, if you ask who's LeBron James, it will go through and, you know, predict, well, he's a NBA player, right? Like that's the next most logical word to come, come out. The problem with citations, when you ask for who, you know, wrote this work or cite your work, it has a habit of just making things up because it will take all the people who have written on a topic and then combine the names and the titles in, in interesting ways, um, but obviously ways that are not accurate to the real citations and the real people. We often hear about chat GPT hallucinating and you just described it. Exactly, exactly. Though I think it's also been amazing, uh, and I think a lot of people experience this, just the emergent behavior of chat GPT. Um, I think one of them that I, I'm not sure if it was originally intended, maybe a surprise, was its ability to code. Um, so there's so much you know, programming language out there that it, when it was training, it actually kind of learned how to code uh, fairly, fairly well. Um, and so just this emergent behavior we're seeing with these models once we start playing with them. No kidding. So I wanted to ask you, and I do have the book in front of me. And like I said, I read it over the weekend. I've got sticky notes all over it. And just so you know, and I use a lot of colored index cards because sticky notes means I want to come back to it. That's kind of permanent. The colored cards, depending on what the color is, some of it might be, you know, the pink ones are, you know, I think this one's going to be a money, you know, this one's about money. If it's no, if it's green, it's going to be about money. If it's pink, it's read this again and pay attention this time. <laughs> so I've got three colored cards in here, pink, yellow, and green. So I did read it. But tell me why you wrote this book and, and what what are you seeing since it was published and since you wrote it? What yeah. are you seeing how the, the rapid evolution of technology from AI to blockchain to the Internet of Things how has that impacted various industries? What are you saying? 
Well, you know, the, the first and foremost answer is I've actually been teaching an elective of this name, Strategy in the Digital Age, for about six or seven years now. And so in many ways, this book was uh, my efforts to create something for my students um, that, that kind of summarized my thinking and, and could serve as a reference for that course. Um, but more broadly, you know, I've been interested in digital technologies going back really since the, the beginnings of my career. And I think it's it's important to recognize that that even things like AI um, have been around actually for a while. Um, I was sharing earlier that um, my systems engineering training back in the early 1990s, I was learning techniques such as neural networks and machine learning, kind of the, the basic building blocks of the AI uh, that we see today. But as is often the case, um, and we talk about this in the book, is this idea of S-curves, that it might seem that for a long time technology doesn't seem to be improving that much. But if it's going to be disruptive, we reach these periods of kind of exponential improvement where it really takes off. Um, and I think that's what we've seen with, with you know, generative AI in the last 12 months is that we've hit that sweet spot of the growth curve uh, that we're seeing these massive improvements. And, and those are, like I said, both exciting and, and fraught times. And so what the book is trying to do is help businesses uh, navigate these kind of, um, you know, fraught waters that we live in, in terms of the you know, pace of technological change, uh, the improvements we're seeing, uh, and, and how to kind of map out a strategy as a company um, in this digitally you know, transforming world. One of the things I always like to observe is I, I have yet to come across an industry or a firm that isn't at least at some level being impacted by digital technology. Uh, this is not just, you know, big tech out in the Bay Area. This is something that is permeating, you know, virtually every uh virtually every industry. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you should say that because one of my sticky notes is on page 72 and it says the folly of competing on technology. Yeah. So let's talk about that chapter because I think there's some pretty important stuff in here. Yeah. You know, um, Lots of companies, I think, when they come to the need to digitally transform, immediately go to what I call the bottom of the digital transformation stack, which is your digital infrastructure. And so they invest heavily maybe in cloud computing, building data lakes, um, maybe building out some of their computational capabilities. And those can be critical, no doubt. Um, but they are very rarely in and of themselves a source of competitive advantage. And in fact, companies spend billions a year, trillions on digital infrastructure. Um, some of them are very impactful. Some of them are not. And so understanding why you're building it out is critical. And so at the heart of a lot of what I talk about in the book is this concept of the strategist challenge. Uh, very simply, the valuable competitive positions emerge out of your um, values and mission as an organization, that's your North Star, very important. The opportunities the market provides and your capabilities as an organization. And, and what makes digital transformation fraught is that uh, opportunity set is constantly shifting and transforming as the technology improves, as competitors take action. And so the question for a lot of companies is how do we have to evolve our capabilities? And I think it's really important to think of it as evolve because I have never seen a company just wholesale, get rid of what they did in the past and try to reinvent themselves successfully. Uh, and that's what makes this a challenge is um, for some companies, there's going to be a different set of investments and a different position they take in the market than others. You might have more of an opportunity to be a leader in AI or adopt these types of models and the like. Um, so it, it's really going to be both industry and context specific, but also firm and organizational specific about how you best position yourselves. 
So checking in with your magic eight ball is not the answer. No, if anything, I, you know, I always try to clarify that, uh, you know, I have uh, no great insight into where the future of technology is going to be. I mean, I can share my own opinions, but anyone who can tell you with certainty of where they think the technology will be five years, 10 years from now, uh, don't don't believe them, I would say. Exactly. And, and one of one of the things I point at um, and others have you know highlighted as well are the exponential improvements we've seen in the underlying technology. So the most famous is what people refer to as Moore's law, which is this roughly doubling of uh, processing power and computing power we see every 18 months or so. Um, my point of view is if those exponential trends continue for even another five, 10 years, the, the world is going to be dramatically different than the one we see today. And I think people are already sensing this from what they're seeing with these large language models is that the version 4.0 of ChatGPT is demonstrably better than the 3.5 they released back in November. And the next one is gonna be even you know, greater. And um, that's that exponential growth of technology, that exponential improvement of the S-curve. Uh, and so it makes it very hard to know exactly where we're going. We just need to recognize it's gonna be dynamic, it's gonna be different, and you gotta be at agile and prepared to deal with that. Exactly. And I'm glad you used the word agile because that's so important. And, you know, let's just say small businesses who are, and I've come across some of these, I'm helping or consulting with a couple of them. And they're saying, I just don't know much about social media. You know, I've got this business and I want to grow. And honestly, they're thinking, and now I have to add chat to all this. It scared the bejeebers out of people. Yeah. No, and I think it's, you know, you want to be clear, how does it actually add value for you exactly. in the way you're positioning yourself in the marketplace? You know, maybe it, it changes your value proposition. It adds value-added services for your customers. Maybe it's just about operational efficiencies. Maybe it allows you to do things quicker and better and more efficiently. Um, but understanding that is going to be key. And, and again, thinking through the competitive environment as well. Like, what is this going to allow your competitors to do? Um, is another important part of the question you need to be asking. Exactly. And this is something that I mention often, but it bears repeating. When you're working in chat GPT, it is not private. Be careful what you put in there. That's if right. Uh, and you expand on that if you would, because, I mean, I've had people say, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm an attorney and I can have my client's documents written. Oh, no, you can't. Their names are in it. Their businesses are, don't do it. I think, you know, we're already seeing solutions to this particular problem. You can create private instances and the like, and, and a number of the big tech companies are kind of positioning themselves to do that for they you. Should. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it is true that, you know, the, the large of the large language models, you know, you're training this off of massive data sets to be able to have these emergent properties that we see. In some ways, you could argue that, you know, uh, what OpenAI did is they trained it on the Internet, right, of all the publicly available writings on the Internet are kind of at the heart of what allows the model to do what it, what it does. Um, I think what you'll start to see, we're already seeing, is the kind of walled garden approach where you might have a base learning model that creates the, the basic chat feature, um, but then you can layer in additional specific data for your context, and maybe that's walled off in some way. Um, but you're right, you've you got to be careful. You know, who are you, which, which system are you using and, and what are you providing? Because that data does, at this point, for some of them, just feed right into the, the corpus of data they're using to right. create everything. 
it's not private. So keep that in mind when you're putting stuff out there. And I was talking with a, a gal yesterday. I've been podcasting Friday, Saturday, and Sunday just to get caught up. And thank goodness you're you're back on my regular schedule. I'm so excited. But we were talking yesterday because I knew I was going to be talking with you. And I mentioned you and your book to her. And, you know, her her thought process was, and I asked her, I said, do we have to be polite to chat GPT? I don't even know why I asked it. She said, yes. And she, there was no, no equivocation. Yes. Okay. So I say, and I do, you know, I try not to curse at it every once in a while, just get miffed, but most of the time I'm saying, Oh, good job. Thank you. And it'll say, Oh, thank you. So listen, just be polite. Even if you think it's a machine. I, I actually agree with this. I, I feel that way with like my Alexa, um, you know, voice assistants that we have. And uh, I, I think it's actually more for us, right? Because I think it's yeah. important that like we don't get into the habit of not, you know, saying hello, please, thank you. Um, and so even with the AI, it's probably good practice for us to do that. It really is. And I'll catch myself just going, okay, do da 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 And then, oh, thank you. <laughs> I forget. <laughs> so. And you're right. It's easy to get very abrupt. It's, you know, to get demanding. And if that's, if you're doing that with a machine, you're probably doing it in real life. So you may want to look at how you, how you communicate, no matter what it is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I wanted to ask you, and and you mentioned this earlier, in what ways is digital transformation reshaping competition? and disrupting markets. And you said, and I thought this was very important, it's going to be, things are going to look very, very different in about five years, I suspect earlier than that. But what, what are you kind of guessing at? What do you think may happen? Yeah, I think the most important concept uh, that we often talk about kind of economic speak here is what we call network externalities. Um, It's very simply the idea that the value of a good or service improves as more people use that good or service. So the the standard funny line is, you know, what's the value of being the first person to own a telephone? Right. Well, not much. There's no one to call. That's exactly right. This is nifty. Now what? Yeah, that's right. So as more people start to consume telephones, buy telephones, it becomes more valuable. You know, think about social media. Um, The more people who are on a social media platform, the more valuable it becomes. Operating systems have this type of feature. The more likely uh, people will develop third-party software for a dominant operating system. So we live in an era where we're seeing software in particular create these increasing returns through network externalities that create dominant platforms. You know, Google in search, Amazon in online retail, and in uh, in cloud storage. Uh, we see Apple uh, in the mobile and the and uh, PC markets, and so. This world we're living in is increasingly people using data um, and using that data to create value-added services using forms of AI and predictive analytics. Um, And that provides value and scale. Uh, and, And one of my fears, actually, is that what we're seeing some of the big tech companies do is leverage these huge data advantages they have, data on you and I and all of our consumption behavior and search behavior and the like, and they're diversifying to adjacent markets, uh, healthcare, education, um, financial services. Um, and again, the, the the heart of all this is the data that they possess. Um, people have argued, you know, data is the new oil in our economy. Um, and so we could be entering an era where we see heightened concentration of, of 
you know, power and wealth uh, amongst a handful of large tech companies. I think AI is already, and, and machine learning, excuse me, uh, large language models is already uh, demonstrating some of that. Um, and that's going to be a very different world for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Uh, the more this might lead to uh, what we call agglomeration, uh, you know, a few big, few big players dominating the economy. I think a lot of people worry about that. And you know what else everybody worries about? And it's on page 112 of your book, The End of Privacy. Mm -hmm. That's scary. And, uh, we all think, think about it. Yeah, I mean, and our data is being mined in, in, in you know, any number of different ways. You know, it's been referred to as the surveillance economy. Um, <laughs> now, you know, to be clear, some of these uh, efforts lead to, you know, very powerful services that I think we all, you know, love and enjoy. My, you know, my wife loves the little ads that come up in her Instagram feed for for different clothes and the like. I love the, um, you know, recommendation playlists I get out of Spotify. You know, these are all forms of AI uh, that are leveraging data to make predictions of what we might like or would like to hear. Um, so there is value here as customers, but as we were just talking, there's there's also the downsides of having all that data and that loss of privacy and the like. And so, it's a real it's a real um, trade off that we're making. Um, and I, I'll be curious where customers want to go. I think when people are given the option of you know retaining some privacy, sometimes they do. Uh, I have two uh, teenage uh, children, are actually getting a little older than that now. Uh, and, you know, I think they care less about worrying about protecting that privacy. So um, it, it will continue to be an issue, I think, moving forward. Oh, no doubt. And when you're talking about predictions, predictive, oh, I don't even know what to, what the word I'm looking for is, but I went straight back to Amazon. I mean, when Amazon yeah. started predicting, you know, making suggestions, you might like this book. You might like this one. Oh, hey, you might want this apron. Like, okay. And we all love that. No, that's exactly right. You know, they're using the data that they have to make these recommendations. You know, they might say, "Hey, you haven't, you know, haven't bought uh, X, Y, Z in a while. You need to uh, to re up on this." And so, there's a lot of again um, wonderful value that these systems can provide. Oh yeah, I got a note from Amazon this morning saying, "You know, you need insulin syringes for your cat, right?" I'm paraphrasing, but I was like, "Oh yeah, I do." So wow. <laughs> I had to go and reorder because the the company that I had ordered from seven or eight times was no longer stocking it. But Amazon knew that I was going to need it. Yeah. No. Again, this is, this is what we're able to do with analytics. That's exactly right. So. What are you hearing from your students? I know you're teaching this. You wrote the book to help teach them. What are some of the most common things that are popping up right now that they're either concerned about or they're ready to jump all over and, you know, help create it? What's happening? I, I think right now, you know, what I think is on top of mind of a lot of people are the ability to, to quite easily do deep fakes. Um, so these yeah. are impersonations of other people. Um, you can do it audibly. You can do it visually. Uh, there have been deep fakes of uh, President Biden, for example, out there that people have created. Uh, and those tools are, are easily accessible. Um, I had a student create a deep fake of our college president here at UVA, and he, he did it in a couple hours at home, you know, himself. Uh, and so the idea that we can put the genie back in the bottle with this is probably unlikely. Uh, and we have to accept a world where these are out there. Uh, and uh, there's been any number of high profile examples, uh, you know, deep fakes of the artist Drake, uh, deep fakes in the, in the right. artist, artist world, 
Um, you know, when I'm out and giving talks, I, I give a little example of, you know, uh, uh, using the the vi uh, visual features of um, OpenAI. And what you find is, you know, you can say, draw a picture and it does an excellent job. And then you can say, draw a picture in the style of Salvador Dali, and it will draw you a picture in the style of Salvador Dali. Or similarly, you know, give me some text on, you know, how to think about AI. And then I say, give it in the style of iambic pentameter, and it will create it in iambic pentameter. So um, uh, the, the ability to uh, mimic other artists, uh, to create these deep fakes and pass them off as, as the, re you know, the real world, um, those are there. And I, it's, it's hard to imagine how we, uh, again, you know, put this back in the box. So you can write like Shakespeare if you're in the mood. You can write it will write in the style of Shakespeare if you ask it to. Oh man, guess what I'm <laughs> gonna be doing later today. And I'm not a fan of Shakespeare. I'm really not. You know, I've read everything. I've I just I don't know. There's just something about it that makes me go, Can you get to the point? Come on. <laughs> so I'm impatient. So the deep I have to ask the deep fake. Did your student get in trouble? Did he get his hand smacked, or did the president think, "Oh, that's funny"? No, I you know I don't think he used it for any nefarious purposes. They didn't, they didn't try to pass it off as as the actual president. Oh, so good. I think that was uh, that that was just an experiment that he was he was running there. That but again, you know, question. it's 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 an issue for for our political elections. You know, I think um, with the twenty twenty four election coming up here in the United States, I think it's going to be. A huge issue and again it's not just the united states this is going to be a problem globally um it's a problem for markets because we've seen some attempts to use deep fakes to try to move the stock market uh sometimes with success uh, and the thing with the stock market is like even if you can move it for a split second um there can be money to be made off of that so the incentives to try to kind of flood the market with these types of deep fakes to see if you could get a temporary blip in the market um, are just really strong I suspect that there's going to be lawmakers looking at some of this. And honestly, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't have a high opinion of our lawmakers. And I use quotes around that word. Well, um, and I and I worry because there is a lot of rhetoric about regulating AI right now. There was an effort um, from uh, world leaders, uh, state leaders uh, recently in England uh, to talk about the need for you know international treaties on this. Um, I, I think it's a good thing to be thinking about that. Um, but I also think it belies the complexity of how would you actually do this? How, how would you even begin to regulate AI? I think when it comes to things like deep fakes, you sometimes hear, you know, well, what we need to do is put a watermark and then confirm something's real. Um, it reminds me a little bit, though, of cybersecurity in that it's a constant arms race. So the second you figure out some way of revealing that something's a deep fake the people doing the deep fakes will find a way to innovate around the and and so it's it just it, you know we need to try we need to keep pushing but i also am, am less uh less believing that we're going to be able to have some like grand technological solution to deep fakes i really think that people need to really start working on their critical thinking skills we seem to have let in many ways that just kind of go by the wayside but yeah i will see these gorgeous pictures of birds or ducks or you know pets and yeah they'll be touted oh this is a photograph of a baby peacock no it's not yes it's <laughs> well I, and people I, will get called out on it it's not a photograph call it what it is well, you know, this is something I highlight in the book, uh, and, and I'm, I'm borrowing from others here who made this observation that 
really what AI does well is it does predictions uh, and makes yes. predictions about the world. And we still need judgment uh, layered on top of that. And, and judgment is a distinctly human characteristic. Um, and so even when it comes to things like autonomy, like autonomous vehicles, there, there's still a lot of judgment that needs to be layered on top of that to give autonomy to the vehicle and decide what is it going to do in one situation versus another. Um, and so I think what we're going to see is that our marketplace um, for, for human labor is going to be increasingly pushing towards that judgment side of things. Where can we provide value added given just how efficient uh, these AI are in prediction side uh, side of the world. Um, but even there, there, you know, there's great concerns um, in the military right now and hopefully moving forward. The idea is even when you use, let's say, any, uh, an AI to help target uh, um, a nefarious party that you want to take out, there's always a human decision maker who makes the ultimate decision to, to fire. The problem might be is when do we become overly reliant on the AI to the point that while we might still have decision rights, we just always default to what the AI is telling us. Uh, and, and that's a fear that we have as we use these technologies. And we're not quite even sure how it's making the decisions it's making. They just seem to be very accurate. Um, and so, you know, this behavioral part is going to be so critical moving forward. Of how can we continue to have judgment that is reasoned and useful to layer in complement with our with our predictions coming from the AI. And that leads me to my next question. It's in people, I'm seeing this so much, and I know you are as well. Oh, you know, people are going to lose their jobs. You know, this is, my job's yeah. going to get lost. But you just identified new ways of creating jobs. You know, people who have critical thinking skills, who have good judgment, it can, you know, proven to have good judgment, who can step up and say, you know, hey, this this isn't real. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm of two minds of this, to be honest. I, you know, at one level, uh, all the way back to the original Luddites, who were uh, English, uh, you know, uh, factory workers who destroyed the machines that were coming in to replace them. This idea that technology will take our jobs has been here for 200 years. And, and what we see is it absolutely can be disruptive in the narrow that it will take certain jobs will disappear from the economy. But it almost always creates new opportunities and new jobs. And so this idea of a jobless future, you know, again, going back 200 years has never materialized that we, we've always been able to create newer, maybe more interesting jobs, more uh, intellectual work on top of what our machines are doing for us. Basically, what you're said, saying is read your history, understand your history. Yeah, exactly. But I was going to say, you know, why I'm of two minds of it is, you know, there are people who I value their, you know, their opinion, who feel like it's different this time, that the scale of deployment, the types of jobs it's able to replace for, um, it, it will be complete, you know, very, very disruptive. Um, I think, you know, regardless of whether there'll be no jobs in the future or not, I do think what we're going to see in the short run is that what were people who were already, let's say, at the top of the pyramid of their professions are going to be able to leverage the technology to be, let's say, 10x more productive. So if you're a lawyer uh, and a senior lawyer at a, a blue chip uh, uh, law firm, um, you'll be able to be 10x more productive because you can now leverage the technology to do a lot of the, you know, dare I say, grunt work uh, that needed to be done before. Um, doctors, uh, if you look at dermatologists, uh, they're finding that the AI can do probably a better job of predicting whether a given mole is cancerous or not than the dermatologist can. It doesn't mean dermatologists go away. Um, you still need people to prescribe and to you know, 
provide judgment over that prediction, uh, and of course to interface with the with the, uh, with the the patient. However, that same dermatologist now can see 10x the number of patients because now they can use the AI to do the initial screen. So I do think we're going to see a heightened income and quality as those who are kind of again at the top of the of the pyramid are able to become even that much more productive. And then the question becomes, what are the types of jobs that get left over for everybody else? Uh, and, and again, I don't have a good prediction here other than to say, yeah, I, I do think this is going to be fairly disruptive to our to our economy. Well, this is not the first time we've seen massive disruption. If you look at COVID, I mean, that was horrible. Yeah. But people said, you know, mostly, and I saw this mostly in the school systems, teachers said, well, we're not going to let these kids just run around and be be afraid and be scared so they got busy and they got on zoom and they created you know schools from bedrooms i mean they got busy and they created something that i think was pretty impressive no and again this highlights maybe the uh the dual nature of technology that uh in many ways it can be incredibly powerful and, and you're absolutely right it's a great example of how we leverage something online education figured it out, improved it. And while it might not be as good in some, you know, impressions, and I kind of agree with this, is the, you know, in-classroom experience that we can provide, it's still at scale and at efficiency um, that can be that can be quite powerful. Um, and so uh, in, in many ways, technology marches forward. Um, it hopefully provides value and benefit, but there are also these downsides that we need to be cognizant of and, and do our best to try to uh, try to address. I agree with you, but in the as far as recorded history knows and if you <clears throat> excuse me read history and understand history there are always going to be disruptions there are always going to be new ways of doing things don't sit on your hands yeah walk I, around it, and say woe is me go do something and it, it's sometimes not as satisfying to say but when you have these kind of negative impacts of technology you know my best solution to it is to continue to innovate um, I do a lot of work on uh, decarbonization and, and climate change as well. And, you know, you constantly hear things like, well, that's great. Electric vehicles help decarbonize the uh, automobile. But then you have these batteries and these batteries have high environmental footprints and the mining of lithium and the like. Um, you know, my my response to that is, well, then we have to solve that problem. Uh, and then we have to innovate some more and maybe innovate the battery architecture. Um, and and it, it, again, it's not always satisfying to hear that. But again, I think that's the way um you know progress has always worked uh and so you 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 innovate you create you solve some problems you might create new ones you got to innovate some more to solve those new problems that you created and that's brilliant and we look at things like chat gpt and we look at you know the cars i wouldn't own one but that's just a personal thing there's just so many things that we can look at and go you know it would be really nice if people had created the yeah, if they had looked into the heavens, if you will, or the future and said, these are going to be problems. Let's right. go ahead and get in front of that now so it doesn't become such a disruption later. But that's not how it works. But it would be nice. It really would. No. And I, look, I think that's the, the moment we're in with AI and this concern that there are some grave implications of it uh, and that we should be trying to address it. What I'm scared about is that I've not seen a lot of great suggestions on how you do that. Uh, and um, it, it, again, it, you know, the, to use the, the analogy of, um, you know, Pandora's box, you know, we, we, we've opened the box now and it's going to be hard to put it back in. Um, how do we manage it from here uh, is, the, is the really compelling and important question. 
Exactly. So I wanted to chat with you about business leaders. So what is the strategy challenge that you see in identifying competitive positions that align with culture, with mission, values, culture, you know, business culture and capabilities that, you know, many business leaders are looking at going, now what? Yeah, no, I think this is why we call it again, the strategist challenge. I I run into a lot of companies who who say things like, we want to be the Google of X. And and my initial reaction is, well, you're not going to be the Google of X. Google's going to be the Google of X. They're far better positioned than you to, you know, achieve that, that outcome or that position. Um, and what it requires is to kind of go back to the drawing board and go, if you will, back to first principles. You know, what what is it that is your underlying source of success? What capabilities do you possess? How can they be levered to work in a digitally transformed world? And what new capabilities do you need to develop uh, to continue to, to evolve your position to a, a sustainable, successful one? Um, those are tough questions and, and ones that are going to vary by different companies. Um, some companies are going to be digital natives. They're able to fully embrace the technology and build their, um, you know, their culture and their organization off of that. Others, others are going to probably have to rely potentially on kind of some of the old line capabilities they have uh, and see how they can lever them into, um, into the kind of brave new world we're entering. Well, I like that brave new world. <laughs> Look, I'm a nerd in stilettos. I like technology, so I'm not afraid of it. Am I concerned? You bet. Absolutely. Well, making a literary reference to a dystopian future there. That's exactly right. Well, I read 1984 when I was a kid, and it stuck with me. It really (laughs) did. But we, there are so many things that are happening right now that are so fast and they're so powerful, and we really, as humans, don't really quite know what to think about it. And it can be frightening. I know a lot of people are wandering around wringing their hands going, oh, geez, what's next? Well, take some time. This is my opinion. Take some time to study it, learn, read books, listen, use your own judgment, you know, use your critical thinking skills. Don't buy into everything that comes down the road, but you better get used to it because it's not going away. Um, that's right. And, and look, there's there's often, you know, the, the technology hype cycle, as we call it, Um you know, I think we're we're getting there in AI right now, the generative AI. My prediction over the next 12 to 24 months, we're actually going to see a lot of companies, um, you know, fail at AI. Um, it, it's just a very common pattern we see, even with truly disruptive te- technologies, is you get a massive influx of entry, new entrepreneurs and incumbent firms diversifying into the, the new, new thing. Uh, and then there's often a shakeout. Uh, and I, I think we'll see that. I've, I've run into a number of companies recently who have recently changed their name to put AI in the title because they're using ChatGPT. I, I'm not sure that's exactly the level of digital transformation we're, we're talking about here. Um, no. But the underlying dynamics are still there and the underlying potential for disruption through AI are still there. Uh, and and you know after the shakeout, after the dust clears, um, there'll probably be a handful of players who who are making significant uh, you know progress and gains on the technology. Absolutely. And are you paying attention to all of these startups that are popping up here, there, and yonder? And you know they're putting out some really they've got great copywriters, as far as I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And I think they're, you know separating money, but they don't know anything about what they're talking about. Yeah. And again, that's the mania that you often see with these types of hype cycles. And, um, you know, the the market will probably work it out here in terms of, of what's more real than, than what's not. 
Um, but what often happens is when you see these types of shakeouts is you get these declarations that, oh, this technology wasn't that important and it was, you know, we overreacted to it. And, and in this particular case with, with generative AI, I, I think that's probably misplaced. I think I think this is is going to be transformational. Um, it just might take some time and there'll be these these shakeouts and disruptions as we go. Absolutely. So what else are you seeing? What else um, that maybe didn't make it into the book because of when it was written and published, which is, it's not elder, yeah. elderly, it's not an elderly book. But <laughs> as we, we've noted things are changing at just lightning speed. So what are you seeing right now that you feel like you really need to share? Well, I think, you know, a few other technologies. So we've talked a lot about like generative AI and these large language models. There's a much broader class of AI that have been used for, for decades. Uh, things like credit scoring models or detection of credit card fraud. And those types of applications will, will continue to see uh, adoption as well. So it's not just all generative AI. It's, it's other forms of AI, machine learning and the like. Uh, there's technologies like blockchain. Um, it's, it's interesting to think like a year ago, we probably were spending most of our time talking about blockchain and not generative AI. Um, I think there are some real fundamental um, applications of blockchain that are going to be really interesting here. I've been uh, on record a number of times expressing my skepticism of cryptocurrency. Um, glad to see it kind of somewhat vindicated over the last 12 months or so. Uh, but there'll be a role for at least some, you know, maybe little applications of cryptocurrency. Um, real interest in this, you know, what we might call the metaverse, but the application of VR uh, technology married with things like what we call digital twins, where we have like literally digital replications of real world artifacts, like a factory or even a full cities that have been done. You know, all of these technologies are out there. They're continuing to evolve. Um, and I think we're going to see ebbs and flows in their uh, their impact uh, over time here. Well, let's talk a bit about blockchain. What were you talking about a year ago and what are you seeing now? Well, again, I, I have my skepticisms of cryptocurrency and just that it wasn't clear. It still isn't clear to me what problem yeah. it's trying to solve. I don't, um, I don't know. I don't understand it. So yeah. I don't touch a lot of, Yeah, a lot of the rhetoric is about um, perhaps lack of faith in like the U.S. dollar or other currencies, which um, seems to work pretty well for a lot of us. Um, the other applications deal with like banking services. Uh, and again, banks uh, are, are third party intermediaries that uh, make sure that when I write a check or I really don't write checks anymore, but when I make a transaction, I make a Venmo payment that it, that it works. Um, and, you know, I trust those third parties. They seem to, to work well and they're regulated. And there's a reason they're regulated. Um, you know, prior to regulation, we had things like bank runs and we had fraud and, and there was a lot of uh, reasons there is a regulatory structure there to support our banking industry. So again, getting back to crypto, it just wasn't clear what problem it's trying to solve. Um, and again, I think there's some probably narrow applications that that will be used, but I don't see it being this transformative technology that some have, have hailed it to be. Um, I do think blockchain, kind of the underlying technology, has some impl interesting implications. Um, there's been some efforts to use it for global shipping, um, where you have just literally thousands of ports of call and different agencies that are recording paperwork and the like that could be better organized on blockchain. Healthcare has been one that people have talked about for decades and the need for you know, distributed records that you can access your health record wherever you are, when you move, when you go to a new doctor, a new hospital, um, even education. Uh, you think about uh, transcripts and the ability to verify that, yes, you got a degree from the University of Virginia. 
right now that's all handled in a very bespoke manner where you like call up UVA and we give you a transcript. There should be a solution that allows for uh, maintaining and verifying your records. So again, I think we'll see uh, uh, applications of the technology uh, and it'll, you know, we'll be evolving. That makes sense. So in your book, you cover major topics like big tech, AI, blockchain, which we've been talking about. But more than that, your book provides original frameworks and insights from major companies like Spotify, Facebook, and Uber. Let's talk about those a bit. Yeah, and I think this gets to something we haven't talked about is the, the novel business models that have kind of arisen in the digital age. Um, take Uber, for example. You know, Uber obviously very disruptive to the taxi cab business or the broader we call livery business, like limos and the like. Um, they did this without building a single cab, without building a single car, right? They created a piece of software that sits on our phones that creates what we call a two-sided market maker. It connects drivers with riders. Um, and yet they completely upended the industry there. So what did they bring? They brought a piece of technology, but they brought a new business model of kind of ride share uh, and where they get a little bit of each transaction and then the rest is passed on to their to their drivers. Um, you know, this idea that in the digital age, it's not just about uh, kind of bigger, better, faster, cheaper. It, it, it's also about just fundamentally reshaping the ways markets uh, behave. Um, in the uh, autonomous vehicle space, if we're able to achieve kind of full autonomy, we'll likely move to a world where we maybe not own cars anymore, where we're just using kind of ride share type philosophy, ride hailing, where we use an app and a car comes and we don't need to own a car. Again, radically changes the way uh, a BMW or a General Motors thinks about what they do and how they approach the world and where their competitive advantage might lie. Again, industry after industry, this kind of new business model mentality seems to to permeate. Got it. I'm not giving up my car. Ain't happening, hun, as we think <laughs> the deep south. I saw somebody on, I was born and raised in San Francisco, so I got a kick out of this, but I'm not sure it was. My sister said, you know, when they bring in these autonomous cars in San Francisco and you hail a cab and there's nobody driving it, she goes, I'm going to roll the window down and scream from, you know, town not town to town but street to street i'm being kidnapped somebody save me <laughs> I, wish you would. I would do the same <laughs> it tickled me but you know it's just i i don't like the idea of not having somebody in the car but that yeah. could change we don't know we just don't know no and i think that's right i think there's you know any any technology there's always some degree of resistance i think and uh it's amazing what we can get used to. I mean, I'm sure there were people when the dishwasher, or excuse me, when the laundry washer came out, it's like, no, I just really like doing my clothes myself. It's just, you know, it can get <laughs> cleaner that way. Um, but eventually, you know, technology wins out. And um, I imagine the same as when the automobile came. Like, I'm not going into that death trap. I'm going to continue riding my horse. And, and, and eventually that changes. That's exactly right. And again, read your history, you know, see what's going on, see what has happened, see what's changed for the better and see where you can make, you know, better decisions. Exactly. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned from all of this? Well, one of the things that we do in the book, uh, especially through the first few chapters, is the frameworks there are really about trying to map out the industry and trying to understand um, what are the different opportunities? Uh, how is the market evolving? How are these business models evolving? Um, we talk a lot about industry life cycles, trying to understand like where where is your industry sector at at this point in time? Is it 
been disrupted? Is it being disrupted? Uh, is there a disruption on the horizon? How do you think about your firm life cycle? Like, are, are you a new entrepreneurial firm? Well, you will probably have many more and different opportunities than if you're an incumbent firm trying to navigate these waters. And then ultimately getting to this heart of the issue about competitive positioning. You know, who are you for? What's your why? Uh, what, what, what are you producing and what type of value and, and how are you doing it? Um, that becomes the key. And then once you have that, then you can start to ask the questions of, all right, what do we need to do to digitally transform? Uh, and that's where, you know, you get to the, the blocking and tackling of what, what investments do we need to make in digital infrastructure? What applications should we be developing? Um, how should we be thinking about investment in uh, you know, a talent that understands data and analytics? Um, but all of those should flow. All of those kind of granular decisions should flow from your overall strategy that you're trying to position yourself within the marketplace. And the thing with strategy is you can't have a strategy that's a week old. You have no, to and I, actually I, think about it. Yeah. There's a, there's sometimes in the Bay Area, this kind of rejection of strategy that you know, markets move too fast and strategy is all about you know being static. And, and I, I reject that fundamental premise. Um, I think it's a misnomer to assume that strategy is something you set and then it's set in stone for, you know, whatever the next five, 10 years and some, you know, report rewrote and now it's, it's set. Strategy absolutely needs to be dynamic. It needs to be considering the facts on the ground. It needs to be adjusting and pivoting as conditions change. Um, but the important thing is having some vision of where you're trying to go. Um, so while you might need to change that vision or pivot in some way or another, you still need to have that through line of, of what are you trying to achieve? And, and that's what strategy is about. It's about helping understand that vision and that direction you're trying to go. Uh, and then the actions follow from that. What I'm seeing, though, in not in large businesses at all, but in smaller businesses where people are doing what I can only consider panicking a bit. You know, yeah. you mentioned, you know, where they're changing their their business name to add chat GPT. That's a mistake. In my <laughs> Very well could be. Very well I, could be. I think it would be. But what are, when you're saying pivot and when you're saying, and that's a great advice and I agree with you, what are some of the core values or principles that should guide these pivots? Yeah. So this, again, you know, we mentioned agility before. I think that's uh, become kind of the holy grail for a lot of organizations is how do you build an agility um, to to be responsive. Um, I, I'm a big believer uh, and learned from some of my colleagues here, you know, around design thinking principles. Um, and this idea that, you know, every action, every strategy is a hypothesis that needs to be tested. What are the underlying assumptions we're making? And then can we quickly test those assumptions? And this is at the heart of this kind of idea of, uh, you know, learn quickly, um, fail fast, if you will. Um, but how are we understanding and learning about the world and then uh, evolving our strategy as, as need be as a result? Um, and, and when you think about learning, it doesn't need to be like a huge product launch or a, a massive new effort. You know, how can you build in learning in a kind of quick way? Um, you know, maybe go listen to three customers and say, here's what we're thinking. You know, would this make sense? I don't need to develop a new application. I could do what we call wireframes, where literally just like a napkin pitch and say, what do you think of this? Um, getting that feedback and testing those hypotheses and those assumptions is just so critical to have that type of agility um, in, in your company. You are speaking my language, seriously. You're yeah. talking about something that I've been struggling with for the last couple of weeks, and I finally worked it out yesterday, which is listen to people. 
you know, ask people what it is that they really want to know in my particular case about podcasting. You know, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of great courses out there, but I think some of us are missing the boat by not asking, what are you really looking for? What are the questions that you're not having, you're not finding answers to? That's right. I mean, you think about again, chat GPT and generative AI, what what is the problem you're trying to solve here? How is it either helpful or or not? Um, I think we all get enamored with technology sometimes, and so we're we we've got a tool and we're looking for a solution, right? And and sometimes that solution exists or it doesn't. I think working backwards, where you say, well, what what's the value we're trying to provide? What's the solution we're trying to create? And then figure out what's the technology to best best deliver on that. And sometimes it can be these advanced forms of AI, but but sometimes not. Sometimes you just have to listen. Exactly. And you have to take the time to listen and you have to be interested in the responses. And they may not, you know, kind of fit your preformed idea of what you want to deliver, but that's really what people are going to want. So give them what they want. Exactly. So where, and I I have so many questions and we're running out of time. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. I've got another card here. I'm on page 139, the glossary. I love, 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 love that this book has a glossary and it's many pages long. So it tells people what you're talking about and what these terms are. Some of them, I, you know, I thought I was pretty smart. Apparently I'm not (laughs) nearly as smart as I thought I was when I got glossary. Well, I'll be darned. Yeah. I mean, there's so much rhetoric put thrown out in the technology space. It was just really an attempt to, uh, you know, clarify, you know, what is, what is a large language model? What is artificial intelligence? What is blockchain? Uh, and just try to level set for people as they're reading through the book and maybe come across some of these terms, terms they might've heard out in the popular uh, press and the like to just remind us of, you know, what, what exactly is this thing we're, we're talking about here? Well, you mentioned the popular press and I don't listen to them ever. So yeah, there's I'm safe. I'm I'm at least safe from there. So before I let you go, what else in your book or what else in what you're teaching right now do you think people really, really need to pay attention to? I, I would just highlight uh the second to last chapter is all about the ways in which um the digital age are affecting the kind of broader institutions and policies as it relates. So something we we talked quite a bit about at the beginning of the podcast. From a strategy standpoint, from a business standpoint, my main message is you need to be intentional about this. You need to understand, like, what are the issues? Is it data privacy? Is it worried about deep fakes? What's your position as an organization as it relates to those? And, and ultimately, I think the most important question are like, what are your values as an organization? This is a fraught territory again. And I think the more that companies can be and organizations can be explicit about um, perhaps where the red lines are, I think the better, because otherwise you can slip very easily into doing things that you're, you know, at the time maybe feels like it's okay, this will build, you know, this will create some value. But have you asked the hard questions about what, what are some of the negative potential impacts of the technology? Um, and and I think being, again, explicit about that and understanding what the impact on your various stakeholders are is is just really critical in this in this digital age we live in. Well said, and thank you. Michael, I really sincerely appreciate your company today. So I want you to know spending time with you has been a pleasure, and I feel so much smarter. I really really, appreciate the time as well, and uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to come on. Well, my pleasure. So before you go, can you share your online presence and your preferred means of contact for anybody who wishes to learn more about you, and where can people find your book? 
Yeah. So uh, first with the book uh, available on all your major online channels, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Goodreads and the like. Um, and then in terms of me in general, probably the easiest is my personal website, which is just um, Michael Lennox, L-E-N-O-X dot com. Uh, and you'll find a whole bunch of information about some of my interests, including my own podcast I have uh, called Good Disruption with my colleague, Yale Krishna Cocaine here at Darden. Oh, good. I'm going to have to go listen to that. Do you have any more books in the pipeline? Not in the moment. I have some ideas uh, beginning to outline some possibilities, but uh, it's going to be a little while before the next book comes out. I have to ask you, everything that you're doing, you're teaching, you have rewriting book. Do you sleep? <laughs> it feels like sometimes that I don't, but uh, no, I, I definitely try to keep the work-life balance in check here. Oh, I don't even know what work-life balance is. To me, it's all one big blur. <laughs> it really <laughs> is. Well, listen, thank you again. And for our audience, as we conclude today's episode, your feedback means a lot to me. And if you found the show helpful, please support us with a quick review on iTunes. Your input is really vital in my mission to inspire and empower more individuals. So don't forget to hit subscribe, leave a review, and share your partner in Success Radio with your friends and your colleagues. And be sure to take the time to go find Michael Lennox on the web, connect with him, and get that book. Thank you for tuning in. And Michael, again, thank you. Thank you again. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab.